marks, of course, the 21st anniversary of the terrorist attacks that took down the World Trade Center in New York and brought death and destruction to the heart of the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and forced other Americans over the skies of Pennsylvania to sacrifice their lives to save the lives of others. And while no event should ever overshadow the fact that this is first and foremost the Lord's Day, it is fitting that we should remember not only those who died on that day, but those who have made the ultimate sacrifice protecting us since, and the thousands upon thousands of others who have put themselves in harm's way, whether they be first responders or military personnel in order to keep us safe. Our nation and culture, they were on a, they were not on a good course when that event took place, when the shock of that attack rocked the country. The events produced a brief pause in that path, but now, 21 years later, the pace has picked up again, and the godless course has, I think, been renewed with a passion. More and more, the values communicated to men and women in God's Word are being attacked, they're being set aside, and replaced by a willful agenda that is only going to breed sorrow and repression in the end. Men and women in the bondage of sin will never know peace and freedom. That comes only from Christ and from his word. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, Paul puts it very clearly when he says in Galatians 6-7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now in the midst of this atmosphere, we've been looking at what it means to live by faith in this world and studying the examples that are set forth for us in Hebrews chapter 11. And I want to begin this morning with just a brief review to kind of get us back on pace as to where we are as we move forward. The understanding, we said last week, and the application of God's Word to any heart is a work of God the Holy Spirit. He's the one who makes the Word effectual. He's the one who increases our knowledge and understanding. He's the one who uses it for instruction and for correction and for admonition or for encouragement in our hearts. That's the work of God the Holy Spirit. The Westminster Confession of Faith says in part this, it's in the first chapter, at the end of the fifth paragraph, it says, Our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof, that is of the Word of God, is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. The conviction of the Word is, in all of its forms, is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. 
And this, of course, just reflects the teaching of the Holy Spirit, or of the Holy Scriptures, I should say. If we look at Isaiah chapter 44, for example, and verses 3 through 4, it says there, For I will pour water on the thirsty land, and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring, and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by the flowing streams. The Lord promised me there, I'll pour out my spirit on them, and they will, through that spirit, embrace the word, and they will spring up in faith. In Isaiah 59 and verse 21, we read this. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. And then the prophecy of Ezekiel, chapter 36, and verse 27, we read, And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. I'll put my spirit in you, and my spirit in you will cause you to respond to the word and give you the truth of the word in your hearts and the grace by which you may conform to that word. And then finally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12, when I say finally, I don't mean these are the only places where we can find this, but finally for us this morning. In 1 Corinthians 2, 12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, to what purpose? That we might understand the things freely given us by God. That we might understand them as they're presented to us in the Word. That we might understand them as that Word bears fruit in our lives. Now as we observed last week, it's essential that the Holy Spirit be engaged in communicating to us the understanding of His Word. Or rather, we will remain dull to it. Now that being true, and believed by the Christian, it then moves us to pray for God's blessing on us in that regard. If you're convinced something is yours by grace, you're obviously going to pursue it by prayer. Ask, says Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So knowing that this is the blessing of God upon us, in regard to his word, we go to him, we ask him to open his word to us and to give us the hearts to believe it, and we seek that from the hand of God. In Psalm 105, verse 4, David says there, Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Now we are also to search the word of God. We're to pray for that blessing, but while we're praying for it, we are also to be searching the word of God. We're to dig into as those who expect to find treasure, a treasure that's more valuable than gold. In Isaiah 34, 16, the prophet says, Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded, and his spirit has gathered them. So here's the command to seek and read from the, from the book of the Lord. And there's no word missing there. Everyone has its mate. And we're to go and we're to study it and to pursue an understanding of it. If you knew that there was a treasure buried in your backyard this morning, 
more valuable than gold and silver, how would you be spending most of your time? Would you be sitting in the living room watching the news? Or would you be out in your backyard digging around trying to find that treasure? You know what you would do. David said in Psalm 119 and verse 72, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Those who believe that there's a treasure to be found and that it belongs to them are going to dig deep to discover and to possess that treasure. And again, as we observed last week, we're to approach the Word of God thirdly with the determination of those who desire to know how it applies and with an eye towards finding things prepared for us in it. If they're there, those things for us, we should be looking for them and expecting them. And with this background, we turned our attention then back to Hebrews chapter 11. And uh, the section that begins with verse 33. So if you want to turn back there, if you have the notes in front of you, you'll find it there. In Hebrews chapter 11, beginning with verse 33, we noted that there's a very easy outline here. In verses 33 through 34, you have a list of the extraordinary things done by faith. And then in verses 35 through 37, you have a list of extraordinary things endured by faith. And looking at that and taking all this background, we came to a general conclusion. And the general conclusion was this. Faith eyes God and rests on Him. Yea, and draws virtue from Him to do or to endure whatsoever shall seem good to Him. It appears that they may be done by, uh, that may be done by faith which otherwise cannot happen. And so faith is the thing that empowers us to this. And this general conclusion here is that the one that serves us in our everyday life and circumstance is the Lord. And our faith and our trust and our confidence in Him. We don't know what the day is going to bring or what's going to require of us. In the order of God's providence, all sorts of challenges arise. But I know, by the word of God, that I will find everything necessary to meet and endure that trial, whatever it is, by fixing my eyes on God in faith. Resting in or on Him, drawing from Him His grace, the wisdom, and the patience, and the, the trust, and the strength that's needed in all those changing circumstances. And of course, we went there to say the obvious thing, well, how do we do that? And we mentioned that the answer is complex, but it's summed up in three things. Praying, believing, and obeying. Praying, believing, and obeying. Now, the only thing left to highlight from last week here is the nature of the faith that's described in Hebrews 11. The sort of faith that enables us to do and to adore the glory of God, to the glory of God, I should say. And that we find in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, chapter 11, excuse me, verse 1 and verse 6. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, 
the conviction of things not seen, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So that's the kind of faith being addressed here. So now we'll return to our outline. And returning to the outline, we have first the things that are done by faith. And by this faith and this trust in God as God, and this trust in his word to us through the Lord Jesus Christ, men, women, and children, including those already listed here in Hebrews chapter 11, but then an unnamed number of them, they have, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Maybe the first thing you notice as you look at those verses again is that there are three groups of three. And last week we took the first three. Conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises. The second set of three deals with very real and personal threats. And it tells us that by faith, these believers stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, and escaped the edge of the sword. Now when we think of this second list here, uh, the, the three things I just mentioned, I think prominent examples come to mind, right? Immediately. We think of Daniel in the lion's den, right? Where the mouths of the lions were shut. We think of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego in the uh, scorching furnace. And Elisha, surrounded by the armies of Syria, who are determined, at least the king of Syria, is determined to put Elisha to the sword. But, of course, he is not successful at all in that attempt. These are all individuals who experience these specific things. And I would say, beloved, that it's wonderful that these examples come so quickly to our minds when we think of these three things. But what is God's design and purpose in that? In other words, why is he given those examples, those prominent examples, those dramatic examples, that stick in our minds. And why has he referred to them again here? What's the purpose and design? Is it just for you and me to be familiar with history? Or to have a few heroes from the saga of the Jews? Um, just wants us to have some heroes to look back on and see, well, here are some great men who believed what we believed and did great things or adored great things? Certainly not, beloved. Certainly not. That's not what they're there for alone. They may have that place in part. But as Andrew Murray says, the purpose is for you and me to see by the Holy Spirit that under and behind and within all the outward events recorded concerning these and others' examples the vital principle in every situation 
is faith in God. That's what made these men who they were. That's what allowed these women to endure what they endured. It's what allowed them to do what they did. It is their faith in God. And those examples are not just there for us to hang a picture on a wall and say, there's my superhero from the Bible. It's for us to look at and understand that you and I can do and can endure things for the Lord by faith. That it's faith that gives us the grace to do and to endure. The Bible tells you what God has done both in and through those who live by faith. But it also demonstrates to us, again as Mary points out, the proof that in God's leading of his people, the one token of his presence and working was always the spirit of faith which he gave. Faith in exercise is the breaking out of the divine life within the very substance of things hoped for, the proof of the presence of things not seen. In other words, she's saying that it's by this exercise of faith that the divine life that we say we have in Jesus Christ breaks out and gives evidence of itself and demonstrates the reality that we are indeed in Christ. Our faith in Him gives us the grace whereby we do things for His honor and for His glory. It gives us the grace whereby we endure things for His honor and His glory. Now, if we consider the three things here in this part of the list briefly, we find this in general. First, that faith in God helps to protect the believer. Faith in God extinguishes threats for the believer. And thirdly, it provides escape for the believer. Those are the three things really set forth in these examples. It protects us, it extinguishes threats, and it provides escape. So first of all, the protection that comes by faith is akin to the stopping of the mouth of the lion. We already mentioned the example of Daniel, and that example almost comes immediately to mind in the context. But beloved, the Bible tells you that you also have an adversary, an opponent, <coughs> excuse me, an opponent, an enemy, who like a roaring lion is seeking to devour you. That lion is real. That lion has his eye upon you. That lion is seeking to devour you. You remember this is these are the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 8 and 9. He commands us to be sober-minded and to be watchful. And why? Because your adversary, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
Resist him firm in your faith, Peter says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. One of the interesting things about what Peter says here is that the word that he uses for devouring is also found in Hebrews chapter 11. And it's in verse 29, where you might not naturally see the connection. But in Hebrews 11.29, we read this. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were devoured, were drowned in the sea. So what the sea did to the Egyptians, Satan is trying to do to you. He's trying to inundate you. He's seeking to swallow you down like a lion and overcome you in all your attempts to live for Christ. For those of you who are trying to, to raise your, your testimony uh, in, in the world, he's, he's seeking to devour you so that that testimony will be drowned. For those of you who are seeking to live together as husbands and wives and, and live as a married couple, um, you think of the Ellie and Alex and how they're just starting out in their married life together. And we know that the enemy already seeks to devour them in that relationship so that that image of Christ and the church will be obliterated. And doing that, by coming between them and coming between all spouses and seeking to devour and to divide, it is the way of the enemy. He seeks to do it in the context of our families. He seeks to do it in the context of our church. He seeks to do it everywhere the believer can be found. Your enemy, the devil, is seeking to devour you, to drown you. And if we're taking the Word of God seriously, then this statement should put us wholly on our guard. If it's really true, that we have an enemy who's seeking to devour us, who's seeking to swallow us down, we should be on our guard. And yet most people seem to spend very little time considering the danger that they may in that they might be in from their active and malicious enemy. Despite the fact that the Lord says, be continually soberly minded and watchful in this manner. The Lord says, be continually soberly minded about this. Be continually watchful about this enemy and what he's trying to do to you. Now, it's by faith that his efforts to swallow us down, it's by faith that those efforts are ended and his mouth is shut. But we sometimes get blindsided, tricked, and trapped because we go out unsuspectingly despite the fact that we're warned that there's a lion in the way. Our danger is diligently described by Leighton in, in this way. He says he goes about and spies where they, that is, the people of God, are weakest. 
and amongst them directs his attacks most against those who were most advanced in holiness and nearest unto God. They were once under his power, and now being escaped from him, he pursues them as Pharaoh did the Israelites, with all his forces, raging and roaring after them as a prey that was once in his den and under his paw, and now is rescued. But I hope you caught Peter's counsel. He gives the warning, and then he says, Resist him, firm in your what? Okay, let's see if we can say it together. Firm in your what? Faith. Faith. Right. Firm in your faith. That's how you resist him. Faith is the thing that shuts the mouth of the lion, both in regard to temptation and accusation. He whispers in the ear every lie regarding sin, but faith in God and his word counters every whisper. And when we do stumble, he hopes to drag us down by feelings of guilt and intimidation by which he brings us into weakness. But faith in Christ's redeeming work and the power of his shed blood to wash away our sins and the guilt of those sins shuts us down. He cannot make me guilty if I am safe can. He whispers in our ear, but faith in God's word tells me that sin is sin. And the only way that I can escape sin is by obedience to the Lord. And when I fall, then trust in redeeming grace. That's the picture that's set before you. That's why this example is lifted up before you. It is faith that shuts the mouth of the enemy. Also, faith extinguishes the flames of fire. Someone once said that fire is, all, it is of all senseless creatures the most terrible, dangerous, and pernicious. And what he means is that fire, though it doesn't have any mind or soul or consciousness, nevertheless, fills with terror, danger, and is dangerous, and appears to be almost deliberately destructive. It's the character of fire that seems to have a life, even though it doesn't. At the retreat this weekend, Elder Luke, was relating a time when, as a young fireman, uh, with all of us and with the boys, he attacked a fire with a partner, convinced that uh, the training he had up to that moment, had prepared him so that he could put any fire out. And it soon became apparent in that fire that uh, the new firemen were not invincible. The fire swept over their heads and brought the roof down on them and endangered their very lives. They ran to the fire thinking, this is just a fire, and we're men. We're conscious, we're aware, we have strength that they could put the fire out by their will. But the fire outlilled them and overcame them in that context. That's the nature of fire. So it's a good example here. And here you're asked to consider how it is that faith 
quenches all this in the trials that believers have to endure. Especially in regard to persecution, but we don't want to limit it to that. So it's particularly true in regards to that, where, where believers are put on, trial, put on trial for their faith and then burned at the stake. And there are still people below it this day who are being burned to death for their faith in Jesus Christ. Don't lose sight of that. But there was a time when it was far more common. And it certainly applies in that context. But on the other hand, the fire is terrifying. And it seems fraught with danger. And it appears that it's just going to burn us up and consume us. But it's not necessarily a physical fire. It's the fire of trial. God says in Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 2, but... Now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. I could recount here, if time allowed, Lots of stories of the martyrs who were burned at the stake and how their faith quenched the fire that surrounded them. They just were not moved by it. And it may be that in the course of time, some of those things may have to be endured by believers more generally than now. But if we can find the promise and expectation too tightly here. If we apply it only to the flames of persecution or martyrdom in the absolute sense, then we do a disjustice, I think, to what is before us here. Every day you live as believers under a hail of fiery darts. That's what Paul said. He said, every day, you are assaulted with fiery darts. And you quench them with what? Shield of faith. The shield of faith. Thank you, Alex. So let's make this as practical as we can. Right now, much like the three Hebrews, you're being asked to compromise and to bow contrary to the revealed will of God, to the will of man. Though they don't see it in that light, you're being asked to worship a culture crafted by men and women rather than to worship God. You're being asked to keep your faith to yourself and to participate in this culture in every way. To compromise what you believe and to do what the world says you must do. And at least for the moment, you're being threatened with the fiery mockery, with the fire of mockery, or scorn, indictment, and even condemnation. If you dare to defy the order to comply, the furnace will be heated. 
Here's what you must do. And if you don't do that, then we're going to make things even more uncomfortable for you. We're going to ostracize you. We're not going to promote you. In some cases, we're going to dismiss you. Unless you comply. Unless you bow. And for many all over the world right now, this is a reality. Christians in all walks of life are losing their jobs or, or being forced to, to fight in court for refusing to bow down. But like those three men facing the furnace in the days of Daniel, it is faith that will extinguish the fire of the flames. It's worth observing that after they made their bold confession, and hopefully you remember that confession, but they made a bold confession before the king, nothing happened in the natural world to encourage them at all. Look at Daniel chapter 3, beginning of verse 16. Daniel 3, 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we, are, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And when they finished that statement, the king said, Oh, let's put out that fire, and boy, these guys are really noble. Let's uh, honor them and respect them for their honest stand. Is that what happened? No. No. The king's anger became inflamed, and he intensified the heat in the furnace, added fuel. And you can imagine being these three men and standing there, making that strong stand for Christ and for God and for the glory of his word, and then watching as they bring more stuff to heat the furnace even hotter. It wasn't diminished. The flames weren't diminished. They roared more violently than ever. And clear evidence was given of their terror and their danger and their destructiveness. What happened to the men who were fueling the fire? And the men who put these men in the fire? They all died under the oppression of the heat and those flames. But the men of God were prepared by faith to endure anything. The anger of the king the flames of the furnace itself, and they were all extinguished in their hearts and minds. They didn't mean anything to them because they were living and acting by faith. There are also the fiery trials of life itself. When God promises, which God promises, to use for our refinement and our sanctification, we quoted this verse this morning in Sunday school. It's the words of Job. It said, He knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. When he has fired me, when he has put the fire to me, I will come out as gold. And this is why we sing together these words. When through fiery trials, your pathway shall lie. My grace all-sufficient shall be your supply. The flames shall not hurt you. I only design 
your dross to consume, and your gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose. I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake. I never, no never, no never forsake. Man, the woman who puts his faith and her faith in God, finds him to be the God who keeps his promise and his word. And it quenches the flame of fire. Next is escaping the edge of the sword. This instance of the sword, uh, says Mary, um, shows that by faith, desperate dangers may be escaped. I say desperate, not in regard of God's power, as if there were no hope of help in him, but in regard of man. The danger being above his strength to stand against it, and above his ability to overcome it, or to free himself from it. Now, there's the situations where we're at the edge of the sword, and there's no place for us to go, and nothing that we can do. Faith is the thing that gives us an escape when no other way can be found. Faith makes a man depend on him who is able to deliver him in the greatest straits. Now I'm required to deal briefly with the rest of all this because uh, Tyler will be taking us into chapter 12 next Thursday. So I want to wind down with just a series of statements here and a few comments on each and then we'll close out the whole of what's here in chapter 11, except for the very last part. Faith, we're told, is able to make strength out of weakness. Faith is the thing that God uses to, to make weak men and women and children strong. By putting their confidence in Him and in His power, we are enabled to do things that we can never hope to do on our own. And faith burns brightest in those who are weak, beloved. That's where it shows us its greatest power. There have been things that we've been asked to endure in this world that are definitely beyond us. And many of us have had those experiences. And the only thing that brought us through them was the faith that we had in God. Secondly, Faith renders one valiant or irresistible in the fight, as opposed to the parade ground. By that, we mean simply that it's easy when there's no trial to appear to be strong. And uh, you see this sometimes. You see armies that go marching about on the parade ground, and they have their weapons, and they have their uniforms, and all their gold braid and their medals hanging all over them and so on. And they look very impressive. And then somebody fires a gun and they run away. And it's one thing to appear very strong and very powerful, men and women of great faith, and there's nothing required of that faith. But faith, real faith, renders us valiant and irresistible in the fight, not in the parade ground. Neither fire, nor water, nor man your beast is so strong, but faith may make a weak man victorious over them all, says Calvin. 
Thirdly, faith makes the enemy give ground. Faith makes the enemy give ground. When we stand in the faith that is ours in the Lord, it tends to cause the enemy to back away. Resist him in faith, Peter said. Resist him in faith, and he will flee from you. Fourthly, faith serves many, even when it is the exercise of just one heart. And count many have been inspired by the faithful standing of another. We look at the testimony of these folks here in, in, in Hebrews chapter 11 and look at how many people they've inspired to stand under all kinds of circumstances by their example. And so just the exercise of one heart and faith can be used by the Lord to encourage many others. Fifthly, the endurance that faith provides is unlike anything known to mankind. As Calvin says, saints reduced to extreme miseries struggle by faith so as to persevere or uh, persevere invincible even to death. And there are examples of that everywhere in the history of the church. Sixthly, faith enables men to do so enables them to suffer. There is no pain, says Calvin, no grief, no loss, so terrible, so great, but faith knows how to make gain to let the believer profit from You can also take time, maybe it's something you can do this afternoon, is to sit down just consider the categories of suffering that are listed here in the next section. You know, uh, there's a whole long list there of, of how the Lord cares for us and all cares for his own in all these circumstances, in war, in death, in suffering, in chains, in imprisonment, in poverty, in loneliness. Those are the categories of that. It's worth looking at them and thinking about them. God cares for one saint eighthly as he does for many saints. It's wonderful, isn't it? But he doesn't just care for all of us. He cares for you. He doesn't hear our prayers because we all get together and, and, and we present uh, a referendum with lots of names on it. And the Lord says, oh, well, I've got to answer that prayer because there's so many people's names on it. He answers your prayer. It's just your name, just your testimony. One thing that impresses us, says Mary, is how little God has promised the faith that it will be freed from difficulty and danger. It would be as easy to God to prevent the enemy coming as to give the victory over him. To do this would be infinite loss, though. Faith would never be called into exercise. Man would never learn to know either his God or himself as his child. So the Lord lets us endure these things for our growth. So just in summary here, all fortitude, either to do or to endure for the believer, is the work of faith alone. All hope of overcoming sin rests in your being strengthened by faith. 
all hope of your being able to endure trial and to endure it so as to give glory to God is a result of the faith given to you. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. Testing the genuineness of your faith. You see how he puts it? Testing the genuineness of your faith so that it might be more precious than gold that perishes, even though it may be tested by fire, and may be found in the end to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, there's one great moment when the lion roars, when the flames flare up, and when the sword seems sharp. And that's the moment when we leave this world. And it's at that moment our faith and our trust for all hope and security must rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we do, we find the salvation of our souls. And all the testing of that faith up to that moment is designed to prove the reality of that faith which saves. May God give us the grace to endure and to do all things for his glory. Father in heaven, we bow humbly before you this morning. We acknowledge, Lord, our weakness and, Lord, our need for strength and grace for you. Lord, you have given us faith. We, you have tried us in our faith. We pray, Lord, that it might be refined and it might be honed and it might be made more precious through every test. And, Lord, that we might come forth as gold. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who is afraid to have his or her faith actually tested because they're afraid of what might be found, we pray that even now they would see that these very things are testing their faith and they need, Lord, to come to you and pray for that faith which overcomes the world. Lord, where we are tempted we pray that we may look to you for strength and grace. That, Lord, we might come forth through that temptation, giving glory to you and being a blessing to others and to one another. We thank you, Lord, for giving us, through your grace to us in Jesus Christ, a way to stop the mouths of the lions, to quench the flame of fire, and to escape the edge of the sword. Thank you, Lord, for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.